Well, over the years, I've had a lot of pretty awful things somehow manage to find their way into my home. I shared with you a few years ago that when I lived in Edmond, Oklahoma, field mice managed to get into our house and make their way into in between the walls right behind our bedroom uh, bed. And so we heard that all night long for several nights. When I lived in Alabama, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, it was lice that managed to find its way into the home. Every single person in the family got lice except for me, full head of, of lice. It was absolutely disgusting. Never in my life have I been so thankful to be bald. Uh, not only did we get lice in Tuscaloosa, we got the mange. I kid you not. Uh, a member at church gave us one of their little puppies. Our dog had just passed away, so she gave us a puppy. It was so sweet of her, but that dog was demon-possessed, and he gave us the mange, every person in the family except for me. Are, are you starting to catch something here? I've always been the clean one in the Smith family. In Naperville, Illinois, it was a skunk that gave birth to babies underneath our front porch. Do you know how I found that out? Any guesses? Sprayed my dog. And so I spent the better part of a night washing that dog with soap and special shampoo and tomato juice and vinegar and gasoline and paint thinner and anything I could think of to get that horrific smell out of our home. Uh, through the years, I've dealt with all kinds of nasty bugs and pests and rodents and critters, but none of that compares to what we find the Israelites dealing with in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, we find that there was this nasty thing that got into their homes, really tense. They were still desert dwellers at the time. And guess what that was? Snakes. Lots and lots of snakes. What kind of snakes? Does it matter? <laughs> I mean, I don't want any type of snake by my house. So if I catch a long worm out of the corner of my eye, I jump 10 feet in the air. <laughs> snakes are terrible, all types of snakes. But to answer your question, the type of snake that got into their tents were not the garden snake variety. They were more of the Egyptian cobra type. They were slithering, hissing, life-taking creatures. And so Moses, being the great leader that he was, went before God on behalf of the Israelite people, and he pleaded with him, God, please do something with this horrific situation. And I want you to listen to how God responded to Moses' request in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, perhaps you're thinking, that's a cool story, but why are we talking about this this morning? I mean, aren't we in a study of the Gospel of John? Yes, we are, and we'll tie the two together in just a moment, but I want to set the stage for you real quick as to what gets us there. Jesus has been on the scene for a relatively short period of time, but 
His decision to turn ordinary water into Napa Valley Red at a wedding in Cana, and a host of other impressive miracles or signs at the Passover festival in Jerusalem, it's caught the attention of quite a few people. And one of the individuals who's quite impressed with Jesus' work is a man by the name of Nicodemus. And so impressed is Nicodemus with Jesus that he comes to him one night to learn just a little bit more about who he is and what he's up to. And on that particular night, this conversation begins with Nicodemus acknowledging that Jesus has the blessing of God, although he hasn't come up through the normal religious channels. So he says this to Jesus in John chapter 3 and verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. That's how the conversation began. But all that I really want you to take note of this morning is how the conversation came to an end. This conversation ends by Jesus pointing back to Numbers chapter 21, that story of snakes in the camp. Now, why in the world does he bring that up? Here's the reason. Because Nicodemus, just like all of those snake-bitten Israelites in the desert, was dying. Just like all of we are. You say, wait a minute, I'm not dying. I feel absolutely great. Well, I don't mean to be a downer this morning, but the moment that most of us consider the beginning of life, conception, it's actually the moment that begins the countdown to your death. All of life is moving towards the grave. Even those of you who are wrinkle-free and sag-free and feel like you're in the best shape of your life, you're closer to death than you have ever been before. Now, how's that for inspiring preaching on this Sunday morning? (laughs) Just glad you came to church today. Like, oh, this is great stuff. Get this, physical death wasn't Nicodemus' biggest problem, nor is it ours. You say... What was? Nicodemus was dying spiritually. Now, this is something that most people didn't recognize, including Nicodemus. It was almost impossible for them to pick up on. Because if anybody appeared to be in tip-top spiritual shape, it it was this guy. In fact, I want you to listen to how John introduces Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man who was a member of the Jewish ruling Council. Nicodemus wasn't just some dude who showed up interested in a late night spiritual conversation. He was a Pharisee. And this was an exclusive group. Only 6,000 Jewish men were selected to be Pharisees. Now, Scripture often highlights the failures of Pharisees, and so we have this tendency to view them in a very negative light, but that's not completely accurate or fair. The truth of the matter is no one took their religion more seriously than those of this sect of Judaism. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but he's not only a Pharisee, he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council. To belong to this group, also known as the Sanhedrin, was a very prestigious honor. This group of 71 men was the cream of the crop of all Jewish religious leaders. 
Now, Rome ruled over the land, but Rome made the decision, we're going to give jurisdiction to the Sanhedrin to every, over every Jew in the land. And so Nicodemus, by being a Pharisee and also by being a Sanhedrin, member of the Sanhedrin, he, he's in rare air. But his religious accomplishment goes beyond this. Because we learn this in John chapter 3 and verse 10, that Nicodemus was considered to be Israel's teacher. Evidently, his understanding and ability to teach the Old Testament law made him one of, if not, the leading teacher in all of Israel. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. When you think about Nicodemus, if you did a power rankings of all the Jewish religious leaders at that particular time, our boy Nick would have been a one seed. And yet, despite his religious learning, his good deeds, his church attendance, going through religious rituals, he was still dying. Why? Because he had been snake bitten. What do you mean? Well, when we see evil show up in the world for the very first time, what form does it take? It comes in the form of a servant, right? It was a serpent that showed up and convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God in the garden. And in a sense, every person who has ever chosen to rebel against God has been snake-bitten by the evil one, Satan. And while John doesn't give us any details as to how or when Nicodemus disobeyed God, rebelled against him, common sense tells us that even this extremely spiritual man made the decision on more than a few occasions to choose his will over God's will. And that sin was like venom coursing through his veins. You see, this is what we need to realize about sin. Sin doesn't just sting, and sin doesn't just make you sick. Sin doesn't take you down a notch in the religious power rankings. Sin is a death sentence. It is a death sentence. And Paul reminds us of this. He says this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. When Jesus entered into that conversation with Nicodemus late that night, he saw in him what few others saw, that he was a dead man walking, and so are we. But here's what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know that night, and here's what he wants us to know this morning, is that your sin doesn't have to end in death. Because the same God, God the Father, who said, you know what, I will provide a cure for those snake-bitten Israelites. I will have them make this snake and put it on a pole, also is a God who says, I'm going to provide a cure for your sin as well. And what is that cure? Well, listen to what Jesus told Nick at the end of their conversation. John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Just like looking at that bronze snake at the top of that pole saved those Israelites, all those who make the decision to turn and look to Jesus, who was lifted up on a cross, will be saved from their sin. 
That's the good news this morning. That's the good news that we have to walk away with. Now, physical death may be unavoidable. And I say maybe because there's no telling. Jesus may come back today. We don't know that for sure. But death is simply a transition to eternal life of God with God for the rest of eternity for all those who have trusted in God, in Christ, in His work on the cross. For all those who have trusted in Jesus to deal with their sin debt through His death. Please hear this. In order to be saved, you must look to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, one of the most famous and influential preachers who has ever lived in his autobiography, he writes about the moment when he came to understand this very simple truth. And this is a rather long reading, but it's so impactful in my opinion. I want you to listen to his testimony this morning. He writes this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. And in that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At least a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now looking don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or finger, it's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. He could think of nothing else to say. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he must have known I was a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, 
but I had not been accustomed to have, have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ, look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, the precious blood of Christ, the simple faith, which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ, and you will be saved. We must look to Jesus, but looking to Jesus is about so much more than simply claiming to have faith. We're reminded of this by John. We continue to read in John chapter 2 and verse 23 and 24. He says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus could not entrust himself to them, for he knew all the people. What did Jesus know about these people that caused him to turn away? I mean, they seemed to have belief in him, but why would he turn away from them? Here's what he recognized about those people. They were interested in him as a miracle worker, but little else. They believed in what he might do for them, but they didn't care much else about him. And that wasn't enough. You see, for Jesus, when he looks to those who are looking to him, what he looks for is genuine faith. And when genuine faith is present, he does amazing work. He not only saves us, but he transforms our lives Let's go back to the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. John 3, verse 3 through 7, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus uses this water and Spirit, most likely in a way to point this teacher of the Old Testament Scriptures back to a promise made by God in Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is the promise of God. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
Here's the promise. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to fill you with a desire to follow my ways if you have genuine faith in me. This is what I'm going to do for you, for all those who have genuine faith for me. And it's that all those that John highlights in his commentary to this, at the end of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. This is John's commentary. Listen to it. He says this, For God so loved the world, all those, the world. He loved Jews and Gentiles, the spiritual elite and common sinners, the upper crust and dregs of society, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Those with genuine faith will be saved, he says. But what is genuine faith? Well, the first mark of genuine faith is repentance. It's repentance. When Jesus mentions this being born of water, it brings to mind John the Baptist's baptism. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. When people were baptized by John the Baptist, what they were doing is they were making a declaration. They were saying to the world, I'm going to turn away from the ways of the world. I'm going to turn back to the ways of God, and I'm going to realign my life and begin to following what God has called me to be and to do. Baptism of repentance. Many people claim to believe in Jesus, but it's only those who are willing to set aside their plans and their desires and their self-sufficiency and begin to turn to Jesus, to trust in His grace, to lean into God, to pursue His will more than their own. It's only those who truly possess a genuine faith. Yesterday, flying back home, I was reading a book, and I just happened to come across this quote that I thought was so appropriate for this morning from George MacDonald. He said this, Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said, do it, or abstain because he said, do not do it. It's simply absurd to say you believe in him. If you do not do anything, he tells you. That's a good word, isn't it? Are you doing what the Spirit's telling you to do? Are you avoiding what the Spirit's telling you to avoid? That's genuine faith. But the second mark of genuine faith is this. It's the transformation of the Holy Spirit, the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And John the Spirit points out that the Holy Spirit's a lot like the wind. You can't see it. You can't hold it in your hands. What you can see is evidence of the Holy Spirit changing a person's life. 
it changes you. And if there's no evidence of the tr- supernatural transformative work of the Holy Spirit, if, we, if we're not different because of that work, we, we have to question about whether or not we really have genuine faith. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 and through 39, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And Peter is sharing in that sermon, says, here's what's going to happen when you're baptized. You're going to be forgiven of your sins. You're going to receive this Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit. You can't hold it. You can't grasp it. You can't see it. It's going to work in your life, though. It's going to change who you are. Guess what? You're going to become more like Jesus. You're going to become kinder. You're going to become gentler. You're going to be more patient. You're going to care more about justice. You're going to be holier. You're going to be purer in heart. You're going to love God more with all of your being. This is who you're going to become. And I think what we need to understand this morning, if that's not happening in our lives, even if we've been baptized, we might need to question what that baptism was really about. Was it an act of genuine faith, or was it simply a religious ritual that we went to to somehow obtain fire insurance or maybe to please somebody else in our life? Because genuine faith, when we receive the Spirit, it changes you and continues to change you. The Holy Spirit should be changing us on a continual basis. And what I want you to please hear this morning is change is not about trying harder. Please get that, especially all of you driven type A personalities out there this morning. And there are a lot of you in the Silicon Valley, right? It's not about trying harder. It's about looking more to the one who was lifted up for us. And so for the sake of our life and for the sake of our growth, look, look, and keep looking to Jesus. And this morning, if you've never taken that step of just giving your entire life to Jesus in baptism and receiving His Spirit, We'd love for you to make that decision this morning. Or maybe if you realize, you know what, I made that decision many, many years ago, or maybe somebody made that decision for me at one time. But I never really understood what it was about. It was just a ritual. It was just a a hoop to jump through, and you're ready. You're ready to say, no, this is my decision, and what's what I want to do because I want to look to Jesus. Then, no, we're here for you. We'd love nothing more to see you put Christ on in baptism this morning. Or maybe you've taken that step and you realize that maybe you just wandered a little bit away from Jesus. Your eyes have been taken off Jesus. You've put your eyes on a job. You've put your eyes on a relationship. You've put your, job, your eyes on trying to grow an image. And you're ready to, to turn back around and look at Jesus. We want, we'd love to pray with you. Just spend some time praying with you this morning and supporting you in the best way that we can. 